Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 15th of January 2023, 11 o'clock service. Katie Loffman speaking in the series, Outsiders Come to God, the Canaanite woman. So how many people here have been coming to the series on Paul that we've been having on Mondays and Sundays? Put your hand up if you've been coming to that. Oh, a few people, good. So uh, it, well, it's very interesting, very interesting course. So I do encourage you to join, even at this late date, if you haven't been. Um, and there's a lot to take in. But one massive theme that we're seeing emerging from Paul's writings is his emphasis on the outsider in Christianity. People who previously saw themselves as excluded or were excluded from God's people are now welcomed with open arms, with no distinctions, One of the defining features of Christianity is its inclusiveness. God's people are not a pure, undiluted race, although some have tried to see them like that. The Jews had a lot of things that they held dear that made them distinctive from the nations around them. They had a law which was a bit more compassionate than the legal systems of the surrounding nations. They had their cultural laws that marked them out as different. And that's how they and those around them could tell who was one of God's people and who wasn't. But it was never meant to be exclusive. From very early on in the Old Testament, there are examples of Gentiles coming to faith and being included in God's people. And some of those Gentiles turned out to be key people in Israel's history. We even see some of them in Jesus' family tree. Stephen will be talking about some of those next month. But I just want to mention one of them briefly this morning that we've heard heard about in our reading, Rahab, who lived in Jericho. Jericho was a pagan Canaanite city inside the land that God had promised to the Israelites. So it had to be conquered for the Israelites to enter the promised land. Rahab was an outsider in her own city because the Bible says she was a sex worker, so not a member of polite society. And she also symbolised Jericho's unfaithfulness to God by their worship of the goddess Asherah. The Old Testament often makes this connection between worship of other gods means being unfaithful to the one true God like a man going to a prostitute instead of staying faithful to his own wife. So Rahab was an unfaithful person outside her own society and definitely outside the people of God. But she had seen what God was doing, leading his people out of slavery and taking them to the land of their own, and she was inspired. When she met Joshua's spies, she showed her faith in their God and she asked for their protection. She knew the spies were in danger and she helped them to hide and then to escape. In return for that faith, Joshua arranged for her and her family to be saved from Jericho's destruction and brought into God's people. She ultimately became an ancestor of King David and therefore, of course, an ancestor of Jesus. She was an outsider who was included in God's people and who played an important part in their history. Interestingly, Joshua's name means God is salvation. 
So he was living up to his name with her. There's someone in the New Testament with the same name, although his is written in Greek, so it's pronounced Jesus. And he is the ultimate salvation from God. His name doesn't mean salvation for God's special people or God is salvation for those who tick certain boxes. No, it just means an unqualified God is salvation. And Jesus shows us that it's for anyone and everyone. Even in the Old Testament, we see Isaiah and other prophets talking about salvation for the whole world, not just for God's chosen people. That's because the salvation comes from God. It doesn't come from anything special about us. But by the New Testament, it seems that people have forgotten that. We see people like the Pharisees taking a hard line on who was included in God's people and who wasn't. They put obstacles in the way of people coming to God. Those obstacles were extensions of the law to do with giving money to the temple or avoiding people that they described as unclean, following pernickety food regulations. They prided themselves on keeping these traditions and they were arrogant about their status as one of God's people. I'm all right, Jack. Bad luck everyone else who's not as good as me. What had started out as showing people a good way for God's people to live had become twisted and turned into a set of hurdles that people had to jump if they wanted to be one of God's people. I wonder how much we do that, put conditions on people coming to church or coming to God. When my twins were babies, you had to keep your children quiet during the service. Because mine wouldn't stay quiet, and they hated the creche, I actually couldn't come to church for about six months. So I'm really pleased we've got rid of that obstacle now with our shush-free services at 9.30. But have we put up other obstacles without realising? Do we do everything we can to make everyone feel welcome? How long might someone stand alone in the lounge after the service, feeling like an outsider, before one of us draws them into conversation? A few minutes? Half an hour? Week after week? There are people at church who don't know many, people who don't know many people at all in church. And it's so important that we keep our eyes open and make sure that they don't feel like outsiders. Sometimes we keep people on the outside by not really opening up to them and not sharing what's on our heart. In church, there should be no such thing as oversharing as we try to go beyond the superficial and really care for each other, to give love and receive love. And this is something that I've been trying to put into practice recently, sharing my emotional state following David's period in hospital. And uh, I've been started to have counselling, which is really helping me. So uh, I'm really trying to be honest about that and not to put up a facade not to exclude people from what's really going on in my life. And that can be a challenge, and we may have to try especially hard. And it can sometimes feel safer to retreat into cliqueiness and forget about being welcoming, or safer not to open up in honest conversation. Of course, chatting in the lounge is not compulsory, and it certainly doesn't make you a Christian, 
but it is a celebration of our fellowship, the faith that we have in common. And it's a chance to support and value each other by letting people in and sharing some of God's love. I used to be a home, in a home group with a woman whose husband was a Christian, but he rarely came to church and he never came to home group. I asked her if he would like to come and why didn't he come? And she said that he couldn't actually read and he found the whole experience stressful and alienating. Everything here is based on reading, isn't it? Whether it's on the screen or in the Bible. I found that a real challenge and I didn't have an answer because, of course, coming to Jesus shouldn't be dependent on being able to read. I guess it's the same for people who can't see the screen or can't hear the words. Some people may feel excluded by other special needs that they have. We need to be constantly thinking about how it might be for others and looking out for obstacles that we didn't even know were there. Because that's exactly what, the, what Jesus was warning the Pharisees against, making it hard for people to come to God just as they are. But Jesus is not just talking about accidentally excluding people by failing to appreciate their needs. Jesus strongly criticises people who actively say that certain people can't come to God. They don't deserve to, or they're not welcome for some reason. Throughout his ministry, Jesus worked hard to break down any obstacles to God. He ignored the concept that anyone could be unclean by mixing with all and sundry. He demonstrated that there was nothing so bad that it could keep someone from coming to God. Even the traditional enemies of God's people, like the Canaanites, were welcome if they wanted to come. And that's what happened when Jesus travelled out of Israel to reach to teach in Tyre and Sidon, a region just over the border. And that's where our second reading took place. There, on foreign soil, a Canaanite woman comes to him, a woman from a hated tribe who've long been Jesus' enemies, sorry, Israel's enemies. She doesn't have a name in Matthew's account, but like Rahab, she knew of Jesus from afar and had come to believe in him. She called him son of David, so to her, he was the anointed one, the Messiah. So she decided to take her daughter to him for healing. The poor girl was suffering from an evil spirit, but her mother knew that Jesus could drive out the evil and rescue her. That's why they came. And this woman impressed Jesus with her faith. First of all, the disciples tried to turn her away, but she didn't give up. Then, horror of horrors, Jesus said, No! I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. It's not right to give the children's bread to the dogs. Charming. But she didn't even give up then. She talked to Jesus and she persuaded him to heal her daughter. But even the dogs under the table eat the scraps that the children drop. And it was only then, because of her perseverance and her faith to persevere, that Jesus healed the girl right there. How often do we feel that our prayers are like that? God doesn't always answer prayers straight away. He wants us to ask and he wants us to persevere in prayer for the things that we need. 
Ideally, that persevering will help us to refine and evolve our prayers, and they gradually come more into line with God's will. That process of asking and reflecting, and then asking again, makes us listen to God, trying to hear what he wants for us. And through that process, we grow, and we make ourselves available to God to do something in our lives that will glorify him even beyond satisfying our immediate needs. And that's what happened with this Canaanite woman. Because Jesus didn't say yes straight away, they had this interesting conversation. And it's a conversation that, when we think it through, ends up telling us a lot about Jesus. She wanted him to cast out the evil spirit from her daughter. But the way Matthew's written down the events We see Jesus showing that he came to cast out all evil, not just individual spirits. He gives a coded message that he will not just bring this Gentile Canaanite woman and her daughter into his kingdom, but that the whole world will be gathered in. So how do we decode this message? How do we work that out? Well, there's a big clue in the place where she lived, Tyre and Sidon just over the border from Galilee. When God gave the Israelites the promised land, the Bible lists seven pagan tribes or people who were already living in the region. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites and the Amalekites, collectively known as the Canaanites. When Joshua led the Israelites into the land, They had to move those people on in order to take over the land and claim it for God. Tyre and Sidon had originally been part of that land promised to Abraham. But when the Israelites got there, they didn't manage to conquer them. So the two towns were never actually incorporated into the kingdom of Israel. They got left out of the promised land. If these places weren't part of Israel, why did Jesus go there to teach? especially as he explicitly says he's come primarily for the Jews. But Tyre and Sidon had this strange status of being promised but not claimed. So Jesus sought them out and he gave them a second chance to come in. That's why he visited them in Matthew 15. He was giving them an early opportunity not to be left out again, to be restored in their rightful place as part of his kingdom. He was putting right something that Israel messed up right at the start, restoring his people and gathering in those who were missing. But not through a show of force, but with his love and the compassion expressed in his healings and his personal encounters. He was searching for lost sheep and gathering them into his kingdom. We see how the presence of Jesus changes hearts and changes lives when this woman kneels at Jesus' feet and Jesus commends her for her life-changing faith. She knows that even the scraps and the crumbs from Jesus that fall from the Israelites' table are worth having and she'll settle for that, for the healing of her daughter. Jesus came to rescue his children, the Jews, from the oppression of evil and here he's let a scrap of that rescue fall from their table to this Canaanite daughter who's under the table like the family dog. 
the image of scraps comes up again in the very next passage. After saving this girl from her evil spirit, Jesus goes back up to Galilee and a great crowd bring disabled and ill people to him for healing. Eventually it's mealtime and Jesus wants to feed them too. But all they have is seven loaves and a few fish. But Jesus gives thanks and breaks the bread and everybody has plenty to eat. Afterwards, the disciples collect seven baskets of scraps and leftovers. This is not a coincidence. We've just come from Tyre and Sidon, where a Canaanite woman from one of the seven outcast tribes was talking about getting scraps from the children's table. To this miracle done with seven loaves and seven baskets of scraps gathered in. And Matthew puts those two events next to each other for a reason. Those seven loaves represent the seven original nations and they're now being used by Jesus to bless the crowd, just as God uses his children to bless the whole world. And the seven baskets of leftovers shows that Jesus wants to gather even those seven rejected nations into his kingdom. Those miracles here in the physical world with a demon-possessed girl and seven loaves of bread give us an inkling of God's much bigger plan, which is to put an end to all evil, whether that's illness, hunger, spiritual oppression, in his ultimate kingdom. Everything will be redeemed and restored, not just Israel, not just a Canaanite girl, not even the Gentile nations that Israel displaced, but the whole world and all creation, including, of course, us. We say in the communion service that we are not worthy to gather up the crumbs under God's table. But just as we see here, his nature is always to have mercy. And he welcomes us in and restores us just as he did when he was on earth. This is the wonderful truth. Anyone can come to Jesus and anyone can be saved. No restrictions. We don't have to be good enough to come to him. And it doesn't matter where we come from, we just have to come. Thank you.